ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Can we both feed the world and save the planet? Hello, I'm Callie Buchanan. At the United Nations Climate Summit in Dubai, food, agriculture and water have taken centre stage with the release of the first UN Food and Agriculture Organisation Global Roadmap. With the first UN Food and Agriculture Organisation Global Roadmap. Among the action items, it says reducing meat production would help meet global environment goals. National Farmers Federation President David Jahinki was at the conference. He tells Fiona Bream Australian farmers believe production shouldn't be compromised in efforts to reach climate targets. We had numerous events that we both sat on panels for and gave presentations at, as well as uh, even joining a protest to make sure that agriculture and farmers were recognised in the conversation around climate change and the fact that we are both the most exposed industry and the industry that needs the most engagement to come up with solutions as well as discuss what options there are for us to participate in the global climate change discussion. This climate conference promised to focus on food systems and agriculture. Do you think that agriculture got its day in the spotlight as promised or do you think it's been overshadowed at all by some of the other negotiations? Look, it was excellent that we have had a day. It was an excellent that we were able to promote both what agriculture does and can do within the climate change discussion. However, there was a lot of other conversations going on and I don't think we quite got the cut through that we would have liked. But uh, saying that if we weren't there, if we weren't promoting what agriculture can do, um, I dare say that we would have been completely lost in the conversation. And you are on your way out of Dubai as we speak. What was the message, though, that you went to deliver? Oh, it was very simple for us. It was the fact that agriculture should be included in both the climate system itself because we are identified as one of the major emitters. So let's actually put ourselves onto the stock take. Let's put ourselves into the discussion around what are the opportunities in agriculture, but then also what are some of the challenges and be quite upfront that Quite honestly, if we're going to spend carbon, if you look at the carbon outputs of the different industries, you should be spending agriculture because we are the one one system that can both draw carbon out of the environment. And yes, we, we do emit carbon as well, but we also produce food. And if there's going to be anything that we produce that's more important than food, um, uh, well, I doubt there's anything more important than food. Therefore, that's why carbon should be um, allowed to be used in our system. So... For us, it is getting that message that agriculture is important and that we have that dual role of uh, both producing food and also being able to work within a cycling carbon system. The Food and Agriculture Organisation released the first of a a three-part roadmap on the Food, Agriculture and Water Day at COP28. Uh, The roadmap says that there will need to be some production shifts in order for the world to meet climate targets. How was this roadmap received by the agricultural community there? Well, we're very clear that we don't want to see any reducing of production. We want to see that farmers can still get on with the business of farming, but doing it with the latest technology and the best research at hand. And this is the part that we've also been trying to um, keep promoting is that Australian farmers are very advanced in our processes. We have adopted a lot of great technologies and, and techniques. We've already done a lot of work and that that should be included in that 
conversation. We we feel that, especially being in a developed country, the additionality request of agriculture shouldn't stop us from producing food. And there is only so much more that we can give. And we also don't want to see agricultural land locked up for pursuits that may be of carbon benefit, but don't actually benefit the production of food and fibre. So in amongst all that, we, we have got some concerns, but also we see a lot of opportunity as well. COP28 is an annual meeting where the member states of the United Nations get together to talk about the progress in dealing with global warming. In total, there have been 27 COP meetings since the first was held in Munich in Germany in 1995. This year, 200 countries were involved in drafting a new agreement, but there's been an overwhelmingly negative reaction from environmental campaigners. The draft text has dropped references to phasing out fossil fuels, instead setting out a plan to reduce both the consumption and production of fossil fuels. The United States and the European Union have urged tougher action, calling for the draft to be strengthened, while small island states that are more vulnerable to climate change complain their voices have not been heard. Sarah Collenbrander is the Director of the Climate and Sustainability Program at the Overseas Development Institute. She's been following the summit from Sydney. A lot of the uh, statements not only don't have the level of ambition that people were hoping for uh, in the text coming out of Dubai, but actually seem to water down on previous commitments made in Egypt and in the UK in the previous two conferences. So a really disappointing draft text from the UAE presidency. So the negotiations were intended to wrap up at 11am Dubai time today, the 12th of December. But uh, eight of the last 10 conferences on climate, eight of the last 10 climate negotiations have finished more than 24 hours after the deadline. So I don't think anyone was really hoping that text with something as contentious as fossil fuel phase out would be closed down on time. What's the issue here? I mean, is it that we need to see larger investments in renewables, which, yes, admittedly need huge finance flows in order for countries to commit to ditching fossil fuels? Is that a sticking point? So that's been largely resolved. Uh, There's very widespread support for a commitment to triple renewable energy. And one of the things that developed during this round of negotiations was a commitment to triple renewable energy in the places that are currently most dependent on fossil fuel. So to enable that substitution. The point that's really contentious concerns the language around how much fossil fuels should be reduced to 2050 in order to keep that in line with the science. So some of the words that were being contended around included things like, should we talk just about coal or about all fossil fuels, which is to say, including oil and gas? Should we talk about all fossil fuel subsidies or only those that are inefficient? Should the word unabated be used, which implies the successful development of technologies that can suck carbon dioxide out of the air and store it and therefore avert its impact on on global warming? Yeah, so where do you draw the line, I guess, is what you're saying. You you mentioned oil there uh, and and Dubai, obviously the host of this event, a a contentious point in itself. Who were the major oil-producing nations that I I guess are, are nervous about any deal on fossil fuels that are uh, that might be staying quiet in these discussions? Well, it's not that they're staying quiet. It's that they're being quite vocal in yes, their opposition. Pro- perhaps the opposite, uh, the, yeah. They're really spearheaded by uh, Saudi Arabia, which represents uh, the Gulf countries. Mm. Uh, and outside the negotiations, you may have seen that uh, the Saudi Arabian government has actually written to other members of OPEC 
to encourage them to stand strong against any any language relating to the phase out of oil and gas. But it's not just a, a matter of uh, those oil-rich developing nations. It's important to remember that the US is the largest producer of oil and gas uh, and has plans to increase its production going forward. So whatever it's saying in the negotiations, its actions have certainly not been in line with the kind of commitments countries were look, uh, progressive countries were looking for in the negotiations. Well, let's take a look at that. Have we heard anything from the US? And while you're at it, China as well? Uh, so China has been supportive of uh, language speaking to all fossil fuels because the past language speaking just to coal was was widely considered to be mostly focusing on India and China, who are very big emitters, uh, of course, given their population size, but historically have contributed uh, a much smaller proportion relative to their population than some of the rich countries. So, so China was broadly supportive of a lot of this language. The U.S. has mixed positions. Uh, there is one thing being said by their envoy, John Kerry, uh, but other thing, the probability of getting things through through Congress at home uh, mean that the U.S. is taken slightly sceptically in some of these negotiations. Yeah, which uh, could, could uh, certainly be a hurdle in terms of getting anything concrete through, I would have thought. What about Australia? What's Australia had to say on the issue, given that our climate change minister, Chris Bowen, has been there? So... Australia in the in the most recent round of negotiations has been really welcomed for becoming a much much more progressive voice than in recent years, uh, and for updating its uh, its targets, which are now in line with a, a two degree world. But the reality is that Australia's policies remain uh, much more on track with a three degree world. Uh, just as a reminder, Australia signed up to the Paris Agreement, which sets a target, a temperature target of well below two degrees and ideally 1.5 degrees. So although Australia is now talking the talk and is seen as sort of a constructive negotiator and actually leading a couple of the important tracks, it's certainly not walking the walk. And the big commitments on you know, 69 new coal projects, 49 new oil and gas projects, I mean, there's a similar degree of scepticism uh, greeting the Australian ministers when they show up in Dubai. While the future of fossil fuels is debated at COP28, Ukraine has launched a new appeal for donations of Australian coal as the Northern Hemisphere heads into winter. Russia continues to target the country's crucial energy supplies, with about a quarter of strikes targeting power generation and transmission infrastructure. The Kiev School of Economics has estimated the cost of direct damage to Ukraine's energy infrastructure at more than 8.8 billion US dollars. Ambassador Vassil Moroshnichenko has written to the Australian government, to unions and to business groups, urging them to again provide what he's described as a life-saving necessity. He explains the appeal to Thomas Ariti. We are deeply grateful to Australian support for Ukraine. It's been essential and uh, $910 million of military assistance and humanitarian assistance was very well uh, received in Ukraine. We, we are very appreciative what what's coming. The call is a call for Christmas. That's a, that's a campaign. And I have to make it very clear. You know, coal is not a life um, style choice for Ukraine. We've been invested in renewable industry. Uh, we've been also can become a source of green hydrogen in Ukraine, and there is lots of uh, capabilities of developing and, and the, 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 the hub in Ukraine for the production of that green hydrogen to provide to Europe. But for the time being, we need to win this war. We need to survive this winter. And it, as it's getting cold, Russians are stepping up their attacks on our power generation and, and transmission lines. And that's making it extremely difficult because it's put so much pressure on the civilian population, which has been suffering now for almost two years. 
But, you know, when it's cold and it's dark, it makes it even more difficult. So hence uh, the call, hence uh, the appeal uh, to consider providing uh, that some of that humanitarian assistance and coal could be could be that gift for Christmas that could be sent over. Tell us, and, and you know, we were talking about this as we were heading into the Ukrainian winter last year as well. I, I mentioned those staggering figures in terms of the damage in the introduction, Ambassador. Just how dire is the situation right now in Ukraine when it comes to energy? We fixed uh, whatever we could fix, um, you know, uh, the damage done last year. And as and it's getting more colder, we just see that Russians are intensifying their attacks. And in some parts, like, they are more successful than in others. Uh, so far, like for instance, in Kiev, uh, we've been pretty uh, good at intercepting those attacks. But we see that 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 it's it will be more of that because when the drones come in swarms and they send ballistic missiles, eventually more more of those will be reaching the targets. And you know, it's it's a war crime in itself to be targeting civilian infrastructure, but. Russia does not know anything about that, and they just, uh, you know, destroy Ukraine entirely. Uh, so, for, so definitely for us, um, it's it's a matter of survival. It's a matter of surviving this winter. And thermal coal, which which there is plenty here in in, in Australia, could be sent over there for that for, with that mission in mind. Uh, and of course, we all understand what's happening globally with with coal, and and even you know, for us, I have to tell you, I mean. Before the war, we had 77% already of our internal industry, which were, you know, driven by um, yeah, by renewables. Uh, and also, you have to keep in mind that Russians have uh, got a hold of our nuclear power plant, which is not operating, which was the largest nuclear plant in Europe, in Zaporizhia. And it's and and it's also that it was a big source of energy for us. And and it's not in operation. More so, there is always a threat that something can happen there. Uh, but of course, for um electricity production for for heating uh we need we need um have the access of coal and also russians have took over the access of our own coal because we used to provide uh, our own coal within from ukraine but now it's all occupied by the russians and we don't have access to it and europe europe is always having trouble with that